Hi, I'm Wendy Francis, nutrition therapist, emotional eating expert, and entrepreneur. I've helped countless people overcome their obsession with food and weight. Isn't it time you overcame what you had become and ignite who you were meant to be? Your time to become an overcomer starts now. Welcome to the Overcoming Podcast. Cravings are certainly an issue for many people, and they can occur for many reasons. Take a listen to learn how these can impact your life, your food, and your weight. Good evening, everyone. Hi, it's Wendy. I'm so excited to be on with you tonight, as I, as I always am. I love doing these calls and being able to bring to you things that I know and things that I uncover um, in order to help you all uncover your best you even further. As I truly know that transforming your relationship with food and eating allows you to transform yourself. And tonight, I am going to be covering and focusing on the mind and how it you know, we're in a, a three-part series on mindfulness, um, but I'm going to be focusing on the mind and actually how it regulates fullness, and here's why. Because when we talk about mindfulness, <laughs> no pun intended, it's really true that you've got to understand the context of the word. When I look at mindfulness, I see mind and then I see fullness, and what we so often overlook and maybe don't even understand is how these two things are really interrelated. So often we think of fullness as being just a body sensation, but it's not true. Fullness, someone can feel full and have not eaten all day. And sometimes the mind can make us feel hungry when we physically have enough in our stomach. So as I thought back on the topic of mindfulness and the three-part series, I wanted to do our second part on this series around the mind and its integration into fullness. And then fullness and how it affects the mind and how these two things go hand in hand. And I will, as we go through some of the content tonight, I will, in fact, kind of bring some of it to the forefront, and then some I'll leave. Uh, so if you have questions or you want to do some of your own Google research, because when we talk about the mind, and for anybody who was on with me last year when I did, I think it was a six-part brain series, it can get really, um, really interesting. I find the brain to be so interesting, but it can get really intense. And since we're not sitting in a room together where I can draw and have you visualize things with me, I feel like on a podcast or on a call like this, some things are better left unsaid, but I will point you in the direction of where they need to go should you really want to understand those specific components. And as we talk later on in the call, if you want to ask me more specific questions, I'm glad to answer that as well. When we talk about fullness, we obviously need to talk about the mind. And when we talk about the mind, we need to talk about fullness. So I wanted to start at the very beginning. 
with hunger. We all can relate to the feeling of hunger. And uh, hunger comes from our physical stomach. And so for those of you that may or may not be aware, right underneath the bottom part of your rib cage, uh, uh, right around your diaphragm, in that, in that sector, right under there, if you put your fist there, that's absolutely where your stomach is. It's not in the lower quadrant of your belly. The reason why I always make this distinction up front with people when we talk about hunger is because we're not always taught where our stomach actually is. And so when you're feeling hunger, it's about the emptiness underneath that rib portion, uh, the middle part of your ribs, um, up underneath there. That's where your stomach truly is in that, uh, in that upside down V. And so that's where the emptiness comes from when you're hungry. So often clients will describe their hunger either from coming from their head or their mouth or their hands um, or sometimes the lower quadrant of their belly, which is intestines. So it's important to really identify and understand for yourself when you're feeling hungry, specifically where are you feeling hungry. And it's a question we never get asked. And it's a question uh, nobody thinks to ask, um, unless you're someone like myself. But whenever anybody asks me if they're hungry, particularly if I'm walking, working with them individually or you're in a seminar with me, um, or I even do it with my, my children, my poor children. <laughs> um, but, you know, when, when, when someone says to me they're hungry, I say, okay, you're hungry. Where, where are you hungry? Where do you feel that hunger? And to get a sense of where it's actually coming from, okay? We know hunger is a normal sensation, and it makes us want to eat, right? Your body tells your brain that your stomach is empty. In true hunger, if it's really in your stomach, and you identify it as being in your stomach and not in your teeth and not in your head and not in your hands and not in your legs, but if it's real stomach hunger, your body tells your brain that the stomach is empty. It does this through a, through a series of different uh, components. The stomach, the, this makes your stomach actually growl, and then it gives you that sense of hunger, those hunger pangs, right? If there is hardly anything in your stomach and your blood sugar is falling low, then obviously you can feel lightheaded, grouchy, irritable, etc. Everybody's different in how they respond to true hunger, physical hunger. Hunger is partly controlled by a part of your brain, and that's called the hypothalamus, just so you know. It's also controlled by your blood sugar level, how empty your stomach and intestines are, and certain hormone levels. So the big thing you want to remember in hunger, just so you can understand what that looks like, is that's a physical body sensation, but it interacts with your mind. And that's what's so important is there's got to be an interlink there, all right? So the breakdown products of certain foods. So when we eat food, it breaks down, starts to break down in our stomach. Some are broken down more in our stomach. Some are broken down more in your small intestine. If you have questions about that, you can ask later on in the call. But amino acids are broken down from protein, fatty acids from fat, glucose from carbohydrates. And that regulates hormones such as insulin, right? And this affects processes at a cellular level. And they send messages to the brain telling you that the brain needs fuel, okay? 
When the body needs nourishment, neurotransmitters are released. Now, what I want you to understand from this, and I'm going to break it down for you. So when you're actually real physically hungry and your body needs food, there are things in the brain that are released. Know that they're called neurotransmitters. One neurotransmitter in the brain is called neuropeptide Y. I do not want you to necessarily write that down unless you're really interested in it. But that's really important in sending messages to various parts of the brain. Furthermore, scientists have actually recently identified two different neurotransmitters, ghrelin and leptin, and they could p- communicate with NPY. Now, I'm not going to go further into that. I just want you to see how much interaction there is between the body and the brain, body and the mind, and how much they're talking during this process. So when you're not mindful, when you're eating, you're going to see how this impacts this whole thing. It's pretty amazing. All right, so we, we have a handle on hunger. If you move to fullness, right, fullness is that feeling of being satisfied or satiated in our stomach. Now, can you feel full in your mind? Absolutely. I work with clients with anorexia who have hardly eaten anything for days on end. Their weight may be extremely low, yet they feel full. Well, that fullness is clearly not tapped into their body, correct? That fullness is coming from a place in their mind that's overriding their signals of hunger. Maybe coming from certain emotions. Maybe coming from certain hormones. Okay, but we're talking about fullness. It's actually, that's a tidy that's actually felt in your stomach. Your stomach tells the brain that it's full. Once you fill up the stomach about three-quarters of the way, your stomach tells your brain that it's full. And normally, in a normal pattern, this feeling would cause you to stop eating and to not think about food again until you were empty and hungry again. Fullness is partially controlled by the hypothalamus, that part in the brain that I talked about, partially controlled by your blood sugar, partially controlled by having food in your stomach and your intestines. Here's where things get interesting. There is a um, chemical called CCK. And what's so interesting about CCK, the more we learn about this mind-body connection, the more we're trying to understand what regulates hunger and fullness, when you eat, food enters and fills your stomach and travels to the intestines. As the food is digested and the body cells are fed, a chemical called CCK is released. This turns on the feelings of fullness and turns off appetite. Now, appetite I look at as hunger and fullness. I'll talk about craving in a second. That's a different category. Furthermore, emotional eating is a different category, and I'll explain that in just a few minutes. Researchers now really are thinking, which is interesting to me being in the field for this long, and that certain conditions such as anorexia, bulimia, and compulsive overeating actually may affect many appetite control body chemicals, including the CCK, cholecystokinine. In clients with bulimia, they've done some scientific research, and those researchers actually think that the CCK mechanism doesn't work properly or that the body's chemical systems may become desensitized 
where that person can eat larger quantities. And it's my wondering and taking that leap that that may also happen in overeating as well. And so we're, we're still doing research around that. But again, noticing the real intricate connection between the mind and the fullness, the mind and the body. Now, cravings are a different component because what I was just speaking about there was real hunger fullness, physical. Then you can talk about a craving, right? A craving is a desire for a food. It's that just true, I want, whatever that is. It can be after seeing, smelling, or thinking about the food. Now, what's interesting to me about cravings, as I've studied for so long, is that even after you feel full, right, your cravings can make you either keep eating or even just begin to eat that food without having any sensation of hunger whatsoever, right? It can also stop you from eating even though you're hungry, that's the reverse of what can happen with the craving. It might, that might happen when you're sick or you're feeling stressed. Just having a conversation with someone the other day who had been stressed out for a number of days and hadn't eaten at all. And um, was an adolescent, and this adolescent was really worried that they were slipping back in their anorexia. And after speaking, I just really recognized that it was more that she was stressed out for a few days. There wasn't any signs that she had. And so we really just talked more about that. So know that craving and the desire to eat food can go in the reverse fashion as well. We always think about craving as having that desire to eat, right? That real, oh, I want chocolate or, oh, I want a lemon tart or, oh, I want a pastry or, or oh, I want pasta, whatever that is. Um, and then you think about it and you, you, you crave it and then you may leap into eating it, right? Moving into action. But it, it can reverse just so you understand that. Now, what's so interesting to me in working in this profession for this long is that I really recognize that cravings can come from a long-standing relationship with that type of Here's what I mean by that. And this is really where the body and mind intersect each other. We all have specific relationships with certain types of foods, all of us, whether that be um, chocolate, ice cream, cake, uh, pasta, you know, there's, I, I guess the list could go on and on, mashed potatoes for certain people. If you find that you crave certain foods, if you see them, if you think about them, not necessarily emotional connection or attachment, but that you just really want that taste in your mouth. I mean, I've heard that phrase from so many clients. I just want that taste in my mouth. That's a craving. And what it shows me is that there's something that you're attached to around that food. It could be a texture. It could be a taste. And that those things can be related to something in your history. We always, I don't know many people that love history. Actually, that's not true. I have, I have a good friend that actually loves history, so I shouldn't say that. But, but I always look at our history with food because I really believe that it impacts us. So if you ate, uh, always ate chocolate chip cookies when you were young and there's a really good feeling connected with that and that's a real nurturing feeling for you, you may crave that sweet chocolate cookie. We also know, as I've mentioned in the past, that that's definitely related to your dopamine levels as well. So always intriguing to know that. But cravings, if you crave a food 
there is a direct relationship between your different parts of your brain and how that's interacting and how that links up. And that can be texture, taste, quantity, and feeling. And so it's, it's always good to note that and to understand that about yourself and where that interlinks. Now, if we become really mindful with our eating and you get a real good understanding of what those cravings are, where they're coming from, and why they exist, you can actually begin to change them just in knowing more about them. It's kind of like beliefs. When we walk around being navigated by all these unconscious beliefs, constructs, and then we start to become aware of them, you start to walk and talk differently. It's the same thing with cravings. If you are really a person that craves specific foods regularly, I've had so many clients over the course of my career tell me they craved milk chocolate. We now know that there's a dopamine connection. But I also know that if that person's craving chocolate on the taste of their tongue or maybe craving chocolate from their hands or their teeth, you wouldn't crave chocolate with your teeth. That would be more of a crunchy thing. But you get the point. That if you're craving something like chocolate, there's a, there's a long-standing history there, and it's bringing you back to a time and place. And there's a relationship with that food that far exceeds just the hunger fullness pattern from a physiological standpoint, right? Get it? You may think that hunger is all in your stomach and that dieting is all in your head, but we really know that hunger is related by a complex system of chemicals that sends those signals between your brain and your body. Furthermore, the craving piece that I talked about is one step, you know, beyond that. Cells in the hypothalamus, that part of the brain that I talked about, that communicate with the cells in the other parts of the brain to coordinate the release and uptake of chemicals that help regulate how much and what you eat. So there is a lot of the mind involved in this process. Food triggers the brain to turn the desire to eat into the act of eating, right? So if we, if we you know, see a certain food, then it's the brain that actually turns that desire into the act. It's not necessarily our body that acts on it. Because if our body's not physically hungry, it won't take the action. It's our brain that initiates that. How a food smells, what it looks like, and how you remember it tasting can actually excite chemicals within your brain, which elicits craving further. So when you think about that chocolate, for someone that's got a relationship with chocolate, when you think about that chocolate and your mouth starts to water and you, you can taste it, you can sense it, that actually is because your brain is thinking about that and it's exciting these other chemicals in your brain, which is furthering the craving. So the more that you're thinking about it and visualizing it, right? And we know that the brain doesn't sense between visualization and reality. I want you to hear it again. The brain doesn't make the distinction between visualization and reality. So when you're visualizing in your mind eating that chocolate, how it will feel on your tongue, what's it like, what's your favorite one, how does the wrapper peel open? Well, that's eliciting the same chemicals to a lower level pattern that it would if you really did it, which is how that begins. 
craving is a little bit different than an emotional eating perspective. And there, here's how I make the distinction, just so you all can understand. Cravings are a relationship-based orientation, as I mentioned. So it's where we have a relationship with that certain food, we crave it, and that can be related to something that might be in our past. Emotional eating is about feeling a certain emotion and that emotion triggering you to eat. Now, that can happen because you want to avoid that emotion. Right? It happens, the underlying part of emotional eating or emotional overeating is because we want to avoid the emotion that we're feeling. There's other things that can fall into line with this. If we look at addictions like alcoholism, drug addiction, gambling, sex addiction, and exercise addiction, they all fall along this same line. So if you get triggered by a certain emotion, and you eat with that emotion, right, that's that trigger. It's because you want to avoid that emotion. You may not want to feel that emotion. We feel the emotions in the amygdala part of our brain, which is our midbrain. And when that emotion becomes overwhelming to a person, they turn to food in order to uh, cut off from that feeling. It's a whole lot easier to obsess and think over and over about what you're going to eat than it is to feel anger for some people, than it is to feel sadness or loneliness for some people. Everybody's different, right? So it's important to really note and understand that for yourself. That can be true for anything. I've worked with a number of compulsive over-exercisers in my past, and I've also worked with a number of exercise-resistant people, people that will not exercise no matter what. They hate it so much because they've been forced to exercise in their past. And that's all about emotion regulation and dysregulation, how we can regulate our emotions, what emotions we want to be involved in, and what we don't. So it's important to note the difference between emotional eating and craving. So I know this is a lot to digest, and that's no pun intended, but, but I also wanted to just bring you back into understanding this process. You know, when we look at the, the breakdown of the products of foods, right, we talked about amino acids from proteins, fatty acids from fats, glucose from carbohydrates, and they regulate, you know, insulin levels and hormone levels and a bunch of other chemical messengers. Um, that's why when you eat, the more regularly you eat consistently throughout the day, the more you have a balanced nutrition intake of protein, some fatty acids, some fruit, um, the more likely you are to have stable hormone regulation, uh, stable neuropeptide, neurotransmitter regulation, and then that takes some of the guesswork out of the mind piece that I talked about earlier around hunger and fullness regulation, right? And then you can get it down to the bottom of, is it a craving, is it an emotional attachment, et cetera. Here's where mindfulness comes in even further, just so you can kind of see why I did the talk on the mind and the fullness tonight. One, so you could see how the two intersect. Two, as I just spoke about digestion, you know, eating foods with certain nutrients and having them digested. Right? When we digest things, it involves a complex series of hormonal signals between the gut, 
which is our intestines, and the nervous system. That's what happens. And it seems to take about 20 minutes or so for the brain to register fullness. Now, I know lots of people have heard that. It's been out there in the media, and I I hear it being kind of thrown around in restaurants all the time if I go out to eat. Um, You know, oh, wait, sit for a little bit. You know, it takes 20 minutes for your body to know if you're full, right? We know this, but that's why eating mindfully and slowly is even more important to understand. That's where that comes into play because if you eat mindfully, you'll eat more slowly. If you eat too quickly, satiety can occur after you've overeaten instead of putting a stop to it. So going more slowly and systematically, taking a pause before your meal. Could be that you pause halfway through your dinner plate if you're a fast eater. Pausing halfway through your dinner plate so you can slow down. There's also lots of reasons to believe that eating while we're distracted by activities like driving or typing, eating in your car, can slow down or we may even think stop digestion in a manner similar to how the fight-flight response does. And here's what's so intriguing to me about this whole thing. Here's what I mean by this. When we're in fight-flight, if we're scared, Okay, if we're playing um, hide-and-go-seek with our friends and we're really scared someone's going to find us, the last thing the majority of people think of is what's in the cupboard to eat, right? Or if we really feel like somebody's out to hurt us or we're really, you know, stressed out at work and need to get everything done and we're in fight-flight, we don't think about food and there's a reason because all our digestive systems kind of shut down because we are running from things. And so what we know is when we're driving or maybe typing, working on something for work, that we can, we can move into fight flight. We know while we're driving, we're in fight flight. Unless you're cruising along and nobody's on the road and you've been on the road about 500 times before. But as soon as you bring other people on that road with you and you bring stoplights, a variety of other things that can be, you know, dogs crossing the street and people crossing the street. As soon as you bring all those things into play, your brain is absolutely stimulated in order to get you through those landmines. How am I going to, am I going to go here, go here? Am I going to go here, go here? And it can elicit a mild to moderate and sometimes severe, right? If you're in a severe traffic jam, um, or, you know, have people driving crazy around you, that that will elicit a fight-flight response. If you're eating in fight-flight response, you're not going to digest as efficiently. You're not going to know when you're full. In fact, the majority of people can hardly even feel and or recollect all that they ate if they get to the end of a drive and they've eaten, if they're the one driving. Which is so interesting to me because over the last 15 years of my career, I have seen, the first 10 years I didn't see it as much, but the last 15 years I have seen car driving increase radically, radically. I see people eating in the car all the time. And, you know, we know modern-day conveniences, drive throughs convenience stores, you know, eating on the run. We know how busy we are. We know how many people are going from this place to that place 
and we know that car eating has increased radically. If we now know that you're in fight-flight response, and like I said, the majority of people are while they're driving, we know that everything you eat while you're driving is not being regulated appropriately. You're not mindful in it. You're not going to recollect it all. You might have the wrappers, and you might know what you bought, but in the moment, you're not focused on the food. You're focused on everything around you. And know that if you're, we're not digesting well, you might actually be missing out on the full nutri nutritive value of some of those foods you're actually consuming while you're in the car, which is further interesting to me because, uh, you know, it, it makes you kind of wonder if you're not getting the full nutritional quality of the foods while you're eating, and we know you're not mindfully eating them, so you're not recognizing it from a satiation standpoint then how damaging can car eating be? And I've worked with so many people that have an issue with overeating and eat so often in their car. And so it's so intriguing to understand that component between the mind and the fullness and the car eating component because we really are seeing scientific proof that eating in the car can really elicit this fight-flight response, and then, wow, what does that do to car eating in general? Follow your heart, but take your brain with you. The quote I found online before doing the call tonight, and I, and I love that quote because I know that in life, we definitely need to follow our heart and take our brain too, and in food, we need to do the same. You need to have the heart and the emotion and the understanding of the emotion, but you've got to have your brain too because your brain is really helpful in understanding and regulating things. And it's really the combination between brain and body or mind and fullness that really enables you to have the perfect symbiosis between two things to be the most healthful eater as possible. And as you uncover that, you truly will uncover amazing parts of yourself as you develop a new relationship with food that allows you to be more mindful in your eating and then allows you to really tap into your fullness while your mind is working. I'd like to be able to open up the line to see if anybody has any questions. I know tonight's call is a little bit more, you know, scientifically involved in nature, but I, one, love the brain and love to understand it and talk about it. And two, I know the brain is a very intricate component of fullness and hunger and fullness regulation. What's so intriguing to me when we look at you know, the breakdown products of foods and the different components, nutritional components of what we eat, when we've really studied it, and this this is something I learned very early in my career. So this research has been out for a really long time. But when you look at kind of the quote unquote perfect combination of food, and I don't like to look at the word perfect, but I'm going to use it here. When you look at eating protein, we know that protein stabilizes blood sugar and helps with insulin modulation. And when you look at fruit, or another facet of, of carbohydrate, we know that that increases blood sugar as we, as we need that essentially for quick energy during the day. We know that fat helps to regulate satiety if, if eaten in small doses mindfully. And we also know that fiber 
from fruits and vegetables can help with fullness regulation. If you look at those four major macronutrients and having those regularly throughout the day every few hours, we know that all of the things are handled for the body then from a biochemical standpoint. And it's so interesting to me when, when I know this, when I see people set themselves up for issues just physiologically in maybe over-consuming carbohydrates all day long and then blood sugar crashes and neuropeptides are off and um, they wind up craving more carbohydrates and more sugar. Um, or if someone's only eating protein and eating no fruit or no carbohydrates and what that does after a period of time when it puts your body in, in ketosis and the, and the effects of that. You know, that when I, when, I, when I, early on when I started working with people and they had some overeating symptoms and we would just start by putting in those four components every few hours, whether it be in small quantity or moderate quantity, how much it helped them regulate. And now that we have more of the neuroscience to back up what each of those specific components does, it makes perfect sense why it gets the results it does. So if you have a time period where you don't eat mindfully and you've overeaten, the best thing you can do for your body and for yourself is within a couple hours, make sure you get those four components. Eddie, it can be at a small snack if you want, or it can be at a moderate meal. But get something with a little bit of protein, some fiber, some fat, some fruit, so that you have something balanced to stabilize all the things that I spoke about earlier and to be able to help you with your hunger and your fullness regulation so you're not left feeling empty from a brain standpoint or from a body perspective. So that's one thing to remember when we talk about mind and fullness and that interaction between the two is that making sure that you're nutritionally balanced at your meals can help. And obviously, as you're more mindful in your eating practices, it will help in the digestion and the absorption of the nutrients as well. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight and for taking this time to continue to uncover your best you. I know that your time is precious and I honor and appreciate you for spending this time with me. Thanks so much. Take good care and have a wonderful night. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend. Rate, review, and subscribe. You never know who you'll help become the next overcomer.